what's going on, people? I would like to welcome all of you to another Q on One edition of the Talk to Q Radio Show. My name is Quincy, and this is my show. And with the Q on Ones, what I like to do is interview people. Sometimes they can be local entrepreneurs, or they could be someone um, who's doing their thing worldwide. Um, so it's an opportunity for you to get to know these people up and close and learn their story and what gave them the passion to do what they do or provide the type of service they provide. So please sit back and enjoy the show. And please be encouraged to share. A lot of people, including myself, kind of do their thing by word of mouth, you know. So the more you spread the knowledge about the show, then the more people who can tune in and grow this thing and make it bigger. And it also gives more support for the people who I bring on the show who are looking to get their product or services out to the masses. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. He's a retired school teacher of 35 years. From the Golden State of California, please welcome Mr. Scott Hopkins to the Talk to Q radio show. Mr. Hopkins, how's it going? Thank you for that applause. (laughs) Quincy, I'm glad to be here. Glad to be with you today. All right. And so let's start from the beginning. What made you want to be a teacher? Well, oddly enough, I I had started as a journalism major, and my goal was to be a sportscaster. And um, when I worked in youth baseball as an umpire, that showed me the happiness, the joy, the spirit of young kids and um, kind of influenced me to move over to teaching. And uh, that was probably the single event that did it was being a baseball umpire. So now, did you teach at one school for your entire career? Did you do multiple locations? Um you know, what exactly did your career cover? Well, I taught about five to five or six different schools over that 35-year period. Uh, the longest in any one school was 11 years uh, at one school called Rosebank. And um, some schools were a little shorter stay. When I was first starting out, I got bumped because the school um, uh, lost population. And, you know, they'll bump a, a less senior teacher over that. So sometimes those mm-hmm. moves are necessitated by rules, sometimes by choice. Okay. Did you teach um, just one subject in particular, or did you do multiple subjects? Uh, in California, as elementary teachers, we teach everything, um, A to Z. And uh, that included sex education and everything uh, associated with uh with the with education of the kids. Okay. Now, when was your first year of teaching? What year was that? Uh, my first time I walked into a classroom as the teacher was in 1972 at a school called Encanto Elementary in southeast San Diego, which was a, a kind of a lower income, lower socioeconomic area. And that was actually in the San Diego Unified School District. Um, when it was my first year out of uh, college at San Diego State University. All right, you say you started in 72. And so what has changed more over the years, in your opinion, uh, the students or the teachers? Well, that's a good question. I I think it's probably the students. I think society's gone through many, many changes um, that have kind of filtered down to the students. you had things like in 1972, we were still thinking about things like Vietnam and uh, 
things of that nature. And then we went into the 80s and um, kind of the me generation, things like that. Uh, we had some of the uh, children of the 60s became the parents of the 80s and the 90s. That changed things quite a bit. And uh, now we're into this, you know, computer age, which I think has changed everybody, you know, another way around, uh, much for the good and some for the bad and, you know, cell phones, things like that. I don't know how teachers, you know, deal with that nowadays when, you know, kids in first grade bring cell phones to school. But uh, I think it's probably that the kids have changed the most. Uh, schools have tried to, you know, keep up with that and match that, especially in technology. Um, and, you know, the teachers have to deal with a different type student and a different type parent too as well. Uh, back when I first started, they still actually paddled kids at school for discipline. And if you did that today, of course, you'd have a, a real you know, problem on your hands with parents, things like that. They would not allow or probably stand for things like that. So it's, I'm sure I think it's the kids and then society in general that's changed a great deal. Okay, and that's exactly where I was going with um, corporal punishment because when I was growing up, physical discipline was a given in our public school systems. Do you think that's something that is still needed? Uh, I will say, when I saw kids get the paddle, it did change some attitudes pretty quickly. And um, there are probably kids nowadays that a swat on the behind would get their attention and maybe, you know, jar them back into, you know, playing by the rules a little more. Our, my principal had three or four paddles hanging on a wall, and this would be after they'd talked to the child, talked to the parents, uh, reasoned with the child. They'd had maybe the same problem over and over, and finally uh, the decision was, you know, I think maybe a SWAT would change this uh, situation. <laughs> and be before they did it, they had to fill out a little form. Uh, they had to have a witness that signed the form. Um, I believe they let the parents know ahead of time. And back in the day, by the way, a lot of parents asked the school to give their kids a SWAT. They would say, you have my permission at any time you feel necessary to give my kid a SWAT. You know, when it actually happened, some of the toughest, you know, uh, most belligerent kids in the whole school were suddenly, you know, blubbering with tears before they got the SWAT, you know, afraid of what it was going to be like. And it wasn't all that bad, but it was a, an attention getter, I would say that for sure. And nowadays, you know, it's not going to happen, but I think there's probably cases where, you know, your listeners and I myself agree that if there's kids they can think of that would probably benefit from that. <laughs> <laughs> I would say so. And because it, is, it just seems now that the students have been empowered by their parents to kind of run the classroom, so to speak. It, the teachers now seem like they don't have as much authority because they no longer have the support of the parents. And that is a real can of worms, um, Quincy. The, it used to be, like you say, the teacher was, was, like in the Hispanic community especially, the teacher was God. The word, teacher's word was, was the law. Um, and like you say, nowadays, uh, you know, Mike, you know, you, Parent, you'd call a parent sometimes and say, look, Mike, I talked to my kid, and he said he didn't do it, so you're wrong, you know, that type of thing. And, uh, mm. you know, you'd, you'd get all kinds of resistance from people, um, accusations from people, 
Um, it runs the gamut. And yet there are still some parents out there that are really good people that realize their child doesn't have a halo, you know, that glows over their head 24 hours a day, and they, they know that their child does certain things, and they've experienced it at home, and they'll work with you at school to, you know, make things better. But as a teacher, the best teachers are the ones that don't give in to the kids, but they treat the kids in such a way that they feel respected, they feel important, um, they feel that they're valued. And if you can do that with kids and make them, you know, feel special and feel good about themselves, they'll buy into it and you won't have really very many of those problems at all. So the the skill set of the teacher goes a long, long way towards reducing those kinds of incidents and those kind of issues with parents. But I'm sure that there are some people nowadays you flat out can't, you can't win. Uh, the other side of that coin, too, is that there's a number of administrators out there that will always take the parent's side because they don't want to have to argue with them either. So as a teacher, sometimes you're caught in that trap that you know what the child did was wrong or you need a, a change in behavior or attitude with a child, and you can't get it because your principal's not even backing you up. They're, they're backing the parents. So there are some tough things that are going on out there for teachers, things that a lot of members of the public wouldn't uh, maybe even imagine. And you think that, you know, you're having maybe anywhere from 30 to 45 kids in the class nowadays. Um, that's a lot of people to take care of and a lot of added to deal with and a lot of, you know, individual uh, differences in parents and students, too. So the job is never going to be an easy job, but it can be made a lot easier by the attitude of the teacher, I think. And you make a good point when you say that a lot of people don't understand what goes into a teaching career. I mean, the responsibilities the teachers have, because not only do you have to deal with the students, which is a tough job within itself, you also have the parents to deal with as well as administration. And you mentioned how some principals may not support the teachers. You also have certain test requirements where if a certain number of students no don't pass a test, then it's a problem for the teacher. I mean, so how much extra stress is it when it comes to dealing with administration and certain testing requirements for teachers to run their classroom? I mean, did that change over the years and become more difficult? Well, it's always probably pretty much uh, individual with the administrators. Some of them are really great, and they'll back you up. And they've watched the, the, the situation. They know that you're right. They'll back you up. And some are, are timid, and that's the bottom line. Maybe they're looking out for their job because a lot of the parents, when they call, if they don't get their way. It's like, I'm calling the Board of Education. I'm calling the superintendent. And the principals then are, are timid, and they're afraid they're going to be called on the carpet, so they'd rather give in like that. So that's one of the toughest parts of this whole thing. Um, you, walk a, you walk a fine line sometimes. You walk a tightrope trying to you know, keep everybody happy, trying to make things come out the best. My saddest thing or my the, one of the – uh, elements that really bothered me was the teachers that just capitulated and gave in to all that, and the kids kind of ran the classroom. Uh, that that used to really me feel frustrated and bad when I saw that type of thing going on because once you get to that point, you you basically lost it. 
Um, as far as testing goes, there are a number of areas where state governments are trying to regulate schools, and these are people that have never been teachers, never been in classrooms, and they're trying to tie the teacher's evaluation to the kids' test scores. And that opens up another problem, too. I mean, people that are under pressure to keep their jobs, I hate to say this, sometimes they will do things to increase those test scores. Uh, when that might yes. be anything from teaching to the test or, hate to say it, going over kids' answer sheets later and changing some of their answers to be correct that the kids missed. And uh, that it's, it's a sad situation when it comes down to that point. Um, I was fortunate that I always had uh, good relationships with the kids, uh, with the parents for the most part. Uh, everything went well, and I never – I wanted to know exactly how much they had gained in my classroom. So I never even considered changing a test, answer, anything other than administering the test the exact same way it was supposed to be done, uh, making sure that, you know, the room was quiet, that there was, you know, no distractions, everything I could do to try and see how high they could score on their own without my interference or anything like that. You know? And I was successful that way, too. I, My principal used to tell me that every year the kids in my class showed the highest gains of any class in the school. And that was always kind wow. of, you know, something that made me feel, feel good because I realized that, you know, what I was doing was working. Well, that's good. And, and you know, I can tell that I'm interviewing an educator because in my, what, um, almost 10 years of doing this show, that's the first time anyone's ever used the term capitulated on the show. So oh, well, there you go. <laughs> that's the first. You don't hear capitulated well, very get a point, often. Get a point to that. Yeah, I get a point for that one. All right. Thank you. Right. I Thank just need you. a little bell to ring right here. <laughs> so COVID-19 has changed the world as we know it. Some kids are learning from home. Some kids are actually going to school. In your years of teaching, has there ever been any type of outbreak or something that disrupted the school system where you taught? Uh, no, nothing of this nature whatsoever. Um, this is a first. This is unique. And society, I think, as a whole, is having a very difficult time dealing with it. And we can talk about that as we move along here. Schools, obviously, are a major factor in this. I do understand that parents want their kids back in school. I get that because they need to be at work, for starters. And they don't all have child care. They don't all have ways to take care of their kids during the day. And they want to go back to normal. But it's not a simple matter of just opening doors of schools and saying, come on in, guys, let's, let's get started. Well, I mean, so in, in your opinion, how should schools proceed as far as COVID-19 is concerned? It's, it's so complex, Quincy. Um, for starters, the school has to be prepared itself. And when you think about the school, of course, the first thing is the staff. And there are teachers out there that are in the high-risk category of COVID, uh, maybe because of age, maybe because of their own health, or they may have a person in their home who is at high risk. 
So there's a number of teachers out there that don't feel comfortable going back to school yet. Uh, in San Diego, they did a survey, and they found out that only 30% of the teachers felt comfortable going back to in-school lessons because of reasons like that. So first you've got the issue of staff health. Of course, the next thing is student health. Let's say you've got a high school of 2,000 kids. They start at 7.45 in the morning. How do you suddenly at one moment in time check 2,000 kids' temperature, for example, to make sure nobody's walking into the classroom with symptoms? Uh, how do you know that there's nobody that's, you know, been exposed in that population? Then you've got things like the cleanliness, the sanitation in the schools. Uh, right now, I don't think they have the supplies, as far as I know, to really sanitize a classroom. And people have, you know, known for years that classrooms are germ breeding grounds. You know, think of the desks, the doorknobs, all the things that are touched by many, many hands every day and have been yeah, for years yeah. and rarely get cleaned thoroughly. So those are issues. There, there's so many other things. Uh, they talk about uh, bringing back 50% uh, of the kids or whatever. Well, the classrooms in American schools, for the most part, are built with certain size uh, measurements. And if they're going to bring back half the kids in a room, well, where do the other half go? There's, they can't space out the kids in a room built for a certain number of people past a certain extent unless they do things like have half the kids come one day, half another another day, half in the morning, half in the afternoon, whatever. Um, the, the other thing is, our, the, the head of our teachers uh, association here in Chula Vista recently um, brought up a good point, and she said, even one death is not acceptable. And think about that, uh, Quincy. If, let's just say, God forbid, some child came back to school and caught COVID and happened to be in the type of response group or whatever that it hit them really, really hard. And despite the efforts of the doctors, the medical professionals, the child passed away. What's going to happen then? There's likely to be lawsuits against the school district, the board of education, possibly the teachers. Um, it opens up just, many, many really, really bad possibilities if the schools aren't fully ready to bring these kids back. And being a little bit political here, our, our president goes on TV and says the schools need to reopen. Well, that's fine, but does he have any clue as to what they need? Um, the Secretary of Education, who's never been a teacher, does she understand what schools need? Uh, saying it is one thing, but doing it is a completely different uh, animal. Um, air circulation in the classrooms, uh, they talk about all these different things that can carry the virus, um, are huge. And then there, has to, there have to be procedures in place for what they're going to do if a child has shows symptoms. Uh, when right. I taught, many parents would send their child to school sick because they had no other alternative. There was no child care, no place to um, watch the child for the day. They'd come to school sick. And I don't think COVID would be any different. Uh, the child has symptoms. The child has, you know, possibly caught this. And maybe the parent figures, well, the school will take care of it. The school will pick up on it, and then they'll help them get treatment. Or the, 
parent just says, well, go to school and, you know, we'll see how you feel after school today or whatever. But there's so many, so many variables here. It's a huge, huge issue that I don't think the public really understands. I mean, they, they just figure it's pretty simple and it's not. Uh, here in San Diego, they've had uh, some schools apply for a waiver to allow them to open schools for in-school learning again. And they granted about 40 or 50 of them, I believe, and they're mainly private schools and charter schools. Um, they have not yet released any data as far as how that, you know, has worked out for them so far. Uh, San Diego State University brought students back to their dorms so they could do their online learning, you know, near campus or on campus. And in one week, there was 140 COVID cases. So, wow, it's, yeah, I, the, the, there's a segment of our population that believes the disease is fake, it's not real, that the statistics are um, all altered. Uh, but, how, you know, tell that to the 180,000 people and their families that have passed away, you know. I agree because... People speculate over what the actual number is as far as how many people died. And to me, it doesn't matter because if it's, if it's one person in your family, then it means something. Just, you know, just, one, just one person can make a difference. And people don't look at it that way. And also, when you consider that some people believe that, well, I'm a, I'm a healthy person, so I'm not going to be concerned about protecting myself, that's your prerogative. However, they don't consider that they're giving, if they do catch something, they're giving it to other people. I was going to say, that's been a huge issue here in San Diego. We have our beaches. You mentioned you've been to the Carlsbad beaches and things. We have our beaches, and people all want to go out to the beach, especially here during summertime, and a lot of them feel they don't need to wear a mask. And so for weeks and months, uh, people have been walking around without masks there. California... I believe is handling the situation the best they can. Our governor uh, has bought into a program where they can they track people that have had symptoms or have COVID, and they're using st statistics and scientific data to decide what needs to stay closed and what can open up and what the standards are to reopen. And there are people that have started recall petitions against him because he hasn't opened everything up yet. So you know you're damned if you do and damned if you don't type of thing. The San Diego Unified School District is doing something which I thought was very, very intelligent. They're the second biggest school district in the state of California, only behind Los Angeles. Um, San Diego Unified has, I believe, 200 and some schools, uh, a quarter million students. And what they did, they partnered with the University of California, San Diego, uh, with their scientists and their doctors to help them decide how best to open their schools and how to know when that time is right. And I thought that was a very, very intelligent way of, of trying to make that determination <clears throat> rather than leaving it solely to educators who don't realize all the possibilities and all the potential traps or downfalls that can happen. So I thought, I thought that was very, very smart. And I I hate that other people aren't taking the same approach and allowing people who actually know what they're doing to try to come up with a strategy. And I feel badly for the students who 
you know, would like to go back to school, see their friends and socialize and things of that nature. But this is a case that is so serious that people need to understand that things can't go back to the way they were right now. And it's unfortunate because if we would have taken care of this months ago, if people would have just stayed put for a couple of weeks, then maybe we wouldn't have the urgency that we do now. But because everyone wants to do what they want to do, when they want to do it, we're kind of stuck in this reality of, of COVID-19. Our response to the disease was greatly delayed, and that started us off on the wrong foot right there. By the time certain people realized we had a problem, there were already a couple thousand people that had died from it, and we had a very delayed response. I read about Japan, for example, Japan never closed down any of their society, any restaurants, anything whatsoever. They had just a very small number of deaths and cases of COVID. Some of the other Asian countries were the same way. And I think the difference was that in a lot of those countries, they're told to do something and they do it. Uh, Sometimes it might be under threat of punishment or something that they really don't want to, you know, take part in. But the bottom line is they do it. And in that case, the disease came and went, and they've moved on. We're stuck in a position where we can't even travel to Europe. They don't want us. And, you know, it still hasn't shown signs of going away completely. And that, that I think, is a sad commentary on the way our country's handled this so far. Um, We live in a country of freedom. That's great. On a normal day, that's wonderful. But the freedom to go to the store and say, I don't want to wear a mask, or to walk into, you know, a restaurant and say, I'm not going to wear a mask, well, that's not a freedom freedom you can really have and, you know, be helping the country or be allowed to do. And in California, it's a basically a state order, mandated order to wear the masks. And most people now are doing so. But we saw people, like I said, that'll, you know, try and get away with it or whatever. But this should have been over, you know, quite a long time ago. The number of deaths is embarrassing, and it's sad. It's tragic, and uh, not a. It was, will not be one of our our greatest moments in history in retrospect. It definitely will not. And so we'll get ready to wrap things up. But I do have a question. Um, back to your your teaching career. I know that you've had a very long career that spanned over a few decades. And I'm sure from time to time you may run into one of your former students. And so how does it make you feel to run into one of your former students who has gone on to be very successful? Well, that's, that's a great question. Thank you for asking that one. I, I appreciate that a great deal. Um, when I first started teaching, as I, I was 22, 23 years old in the classroom, about 10 or 11 years older than the students are. Uh, now that I've retired, my first students are now 59 years old. So uh, there's been a lot of chance to catch up with kids over the years and things <laughs> like that. Put it this way, they're members of ARP already. But uh, the thing that was in my mind in my early days was that in order to be successful, they had to go on to college and had to have professional jobs and things like that. I realized after a few years that that was a bad standard to judge the kids by, that if they, you know, at least got through high school, did well, and had a job that they were good at, uh, good providers for their families, good 
human beings that basically, you know, made the world a better place, but that was the definition of success that I really needed to look at. And uh, based on that, had a number of kids that I've been uh, actually friends with, if you want to put it that way. Uh, one of the, my former students became a police officer and had a long career as a police officer. And his family is almost like my second family right now. They live about a hundred miles north of me, but uh, I go to the, up there for uh, holidays and family events and things like that all the time. Uh, my optometrist is one of my sixth graders, and uh, he oh, takes wow. care of all my all my eye health, which is amazing. Stephen, the person that uh, introduced me to you, was a former student as well, who looked me up after many many years. hadn't heard you know or talked to Stephen for years, decades actually, and you know you find them all over the place doing all kinds of things. Um, I recently started a Facebook page. And the title of it is Mr. Hopkins's Way After School Club. And uh, <laughs> we've got kids we've, we've got kids signing on that I haven't heard from for decades. And we're posting class pictures and things like that and asking kids to notify their friends that they might be in contact with, you know, that, that uh, this is an, an, you know, ongoing, you know, Facebook page and, we're finding more and more of them, but I know that they're out there doing many, many different things. Uh, uh, many, many kids I know about, many I'm in touch with. I invite some of them. We go to uh, sports events together. Uh, I've been to a couple weddings. I've been, unfortunately, to several funerals. Uh, but I, part of my issue that made me successful in the classroom was, and it was very simple, I just took an interest in every child. So, for example, if they said, hey, Mr. Hopkins, I'm pitching in my Little League game tonight, I'd make sure the next day that I pulled the chair up next to them when the kids were busy doing something and said, hey, how'd your game go last night? How'd you, how'd you do when, you're, when you pitched? Oh, well, they hit me pretty hard. Or <laughs> I was, ah, you'll get them next time. That time. Just, just showing interest in the kids was a huge, huge factor. And a lot of them have stayed in touch with me uh, on Facebook over the years, one of my first sixth graders was a championship swimmer, uh, went through a bad part of her life where she got addicted to drugs and was in a bad marriage and became alcoholic. And then she got her life back together, wrote a book about her life called The Do-Over, and she is now a master's swimming world champion. And she recently got inducted into the International Swimming Hall of Fame. So they're doing all kinds of things, all kinds of, you know, great things. And, um, you know, some are having their, their trouble. For the most part, they're doing great. And it's great to stay in touch with them and know that they still are interested in talking to me. It's not like, oh, no, not not him. But, you know, they're, they're actually, you know, Mr. Hopkins, oh, my gosh, how are you doing? Type thing. Um, so that's that's probably been the biggest difference. But. To me, that was the whole idea of being a teacher was to see how are these kids going to turn out? What's going to happen to them down the road when they're adults? And uh, that's, been a, that's been a real, I'd say the greatest part of probably being a teacher was the aftermath, the finding out how they, how they turned out. That is wonderful, a wonderful story, especially about the swimmer. And did you get the opportunity, yeah. I'm guessing, 
to teach multiple generations? Like maybe one of your earlier students had a child that you taught later on down the line? No, that never really happened because probably because of moving schools and things like that once in a while. Uh, what I did have, though, a lot, a lot of times was all the siblings in one family. You know, they would re- – I'd have one sibling, and then the next one coming up, they'd request, oh, I want my child in Mr. Hopkins' class. And then, you know, the, if there was a third one or whatever, I had – that happened quite a bit. But yeah, the idea of teaching a, a child of a former student, uh, that didn't quite happen. Okay. And so how do you spend your days now? What's retirement life like for you? Well, that's a good question also. Uh, you did a very good job on your research, Quincy. Um, remember, <laughs> I, I, said earlier, I said earlier in the interview that um, I at one time was a journalism major. So I, hold, I have season tickets to the San Diego hockey team, the Gulls. And while I was there, I met a kid who was uh, just starting off high school. And he told me, hey, I'm, I'm, I made the freshman baseball team. I said, well, I used to umpire. I love baseball. Tell me when one of your games is. So I went back to his game, which was at my, my alma mater, my high school, and I got back into watching sports at the high school again. Well, the local community newspaper is called the Peninsula Beacon, and I got to know the writer that covered their sports for the high school. And one year at the first football game, he didn't show up. And I thought, gee, I wonder where Barry is. And, uh, so I wrote a little story up about the game and sent it into the newspaper. And the editor called up and said, hey, Barry's moved away to another part of San Diego County and doesn't want to come down and cover the games anymore. Would you like to do it? So I fell into it that way, and I've been writing for the Peninsula Beacon for 11 years now. And the neat thing about that is, you know, you never got a really got awards for teaching. You never got a war- got an award um the best English lesson for the year goes to, you know, you didn't ever got that. But with the newspaper, <laughs> uh, the, the San Diego Press Club, uh, I've won numerous awards for writing and for photography. In fact, just last Monday was the deadline for this year's competition. And I've won not only for sports writing, for but for multicultural writing, for education writing, for breaking news i carry a camera with me everywhere i go i you know chase police calls once in a while and so that's been a real kind of a fun thing to do and up until the the covid thing happened they were paying us for it too not a lot but they kind of paid for gas money and so that's kind of been my my retirement career i'm now a uh contributor that's my title a contributor to the uh, Peninsula Beacon, which is part of the San Diego Community News Group. That is great. So yep. what started out as what you getting your degree in journalism has now evolved into you actually being able to do that in retirement. So that, that yep. is wonderful. So it still kind of came full circle for you. It really did come full circle. And, um, oh, it's just kind of fun doing things like that. I I know all the coaches at the school now. I know the, all the administrators. Uh, I'm welcome on campus anytime I come, want to come up and, you know, interview somebody or do something. Uh, and I'm looking – they're always looking out for me to find an interesting student that has a, a unique ability or whatever. You know that San Diego has a lot of sailing. And uh, several years mm-hmm. ago, there was a kid at Pontlema High School that invented some type of a little fin – that he could put on the side of a sailboat and make the sailboat go faster 
without any more dragging the water and slowing it down. And he and his father went and patented that, and he won the San Diego County Science Fair with his demonstration of it. So, like, I like I interview kids like that and uh, find amazing, amazing things that young kids are doing. And uh, then there's the athletics with all the competitions there and all the athletes with backstories. Um, there was a um, kid that pitched on the varsity baseball team despite having cerebral palsy. And uh, that made for a great story. Uh, you know, he, he was not able to run well or things like that, but he had practiced with his father since he was a little boy throwing because he could use his arms well. And he actually pitched in varsity baseball and uh, did quite well, as a matter of fact. So stories like that that, you know, the community loves hearing and put a good spotlight on the school as well for what they're doing and the kind of kids they have going there. That is great. Well, I, I want to thank you for what you've done. I mean, being a teacher is a thankless job, and the pay doesn't nearly equal the value of the position itself. And I know that there are a lot of people out there who have benefited from being in your classroom, so that's a wonderful thing. And for those teachers who are listening, uh, some of the young teachers who are early in your careers, what Mr. Hopkins has explained today is the payoff. You know, that's what you get out of this job. So keep grinding and don't capitulate your dreams. See what I did there, Mr. Hopkins? I noticed you worked <laughs> in that capitulation word. Why not clever. do it twice? <laughs> yeah. You're, you're very clever. You, uh, you, you didn't miss a beat there. <laughs> well, Mr. Scott Hopkins, I truly appreciate you taking the time. To join the Talk to you Radio Show. I wish you the best, sir, and I hope you keep enjoying your retirement. Oh, thank you so much, Quincy, and uh, thank you for having me on. I, I enjoyed every minute talking to you today, too. And that's going to do it for this T2Q podcast. Go to TalkToQ.com, and that way you can sign up for the email newsletter and be alerted to new shows as they come out. I'm on Twitter at TalkToQ, and that's Talk, the number two Q. So I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast of T2Q, and I'll see you next time.